Hello everyone and welcome back to another episode of The Whole Tooth, a podcast all about sharks, rays and their underwater habitat brought to you by the Save Our Seas Foundation. I'm your host Isla and every episode I sit down with experts in marine science and conservation to ask them your brilliant questions about sharks and the oceans. In today's episode, we are addressing a really interesting topic that was suggested by a couple of listeners, each framed in slightly different ways, but all centered on the same thing. And that is, do sharks matter? For example, Sam J from Instagram wrote in and said, I know that sharks are declining left, right and center and that we need to protect them. But what would actually happen if we lost them? Aside from the ethical reasons, would it matter ecologically? Which is a really good question. Thanks for sending that in, Sam. And D on Twitter wanted to know, what would the effect of losing sharks from the ecosystem be? Again, a really brilliant question. Thank you, D. And I hope by the end of this episode, you'll have an answer to those questions because I'll be discussing this topic today with someone who talks about this subject a lot. You might know him from social media, you can find him over on at Why Sharks Matter, or from the hashtags Sharks Near Me and Best Shark, which he uses to talk about his favourite species, the sandbar shark. And of course, we will be covering sandbar sharks in this episode. You might also know him from his many scientific publications relating to shark ecology, shark conservation and policy, or from his public engagement and outreach work in which he is frequently dressed as a shark. He even has a shark hat, which I am very jealous of. I am, of course, talking about Dr. David Schiffman. He is an interdisciplinary scientist with interests in shark feeding ecology and behaviour, stakeholder knowledge and attitudes related to ocean conservation and marine policy, including fisheries policy. He also has a new book that has just come out called Why Sharks Matter. You can go and get that right now. We'll post links in the write-up of this episode. It is a book for the general public and shark nerds alike. It spells out really clearly why sharks are important, why they're in trouble and what we stand to lose if we don't protect them. It also talks about how we can better protect them. It really is a fantastic book, a really easy read. Please, please go and check it out after you've listened to this episode. Long story short, David is the perfect person to talk about why sharks really do matter. In this episode, we talk all about their roles in the ecosystem, what can happen if they're removed, but also their importance to us as humans and how our perceptions of sharks matter. We also spend a little bit of time nerding out about sandbar sharks and chat about how David's obsession with sharks as a child led to a career as a shark scientist. So grab your best sharky attire and without further ado, let's dive into our episode. Hello, David Schiffman, and welcome to the Whole Tooth Podcast. Thanks, Isla. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, how are you? How are you at the moment? I am doing just great. Uh, I just got, as of this recording, I just got back from attending the stamp launch ceremony for the Jeannie Clark stamp, uh, who is a childhood hero of mine and many other marine biologists. And I got to attend the ceremony at Moat Marine Lab, which she founded and worked at for many years. Amazing. Uh, and it was really an, an, amazing, uh, an amazing day. Oh, awesome. Oh, she, she is 
she's one of my heroes as well. I've just finished reading a book about her life and she just sounds like such an amazing character. Um, did you ever get to meet her in real life? I did get to meet her in real life <laughs> and she, you know, lots of people don't live up to the hype and she definitely did. Great. Uh, she was a, a just a wonderful person um, and a wonderful supporter of early career scientists mm -hmm. and I, it was... She's, her, her loss is deeply felt several years later. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, but, you know, from quite a, quite a sad bit of news to a very exciting bit of news, because as this podcast <laughs> airs in, I think, two days ago, your new book, Why Sharks Matter, has just been published. So, woo, Yay. there it is. There it is. Congratulations, uh, David, on that. That's such a huge achievement. Um, Thank you. And I wish I had a bottle of... Wish, wish I had a bottle of champagne that I could just pop the cork, uh, which would be a great sound. Um, but we'll have to maybe put that in in post. Sounds um, good. <laughs> super exciting. And for our listeners that can't see this, David just held up his brand new book there with its lovely cover. Um, so, yes, yeah, so we are going to be talking all about your book uh, throughout this episode. But first, I have to ask you a question that we ask every guest on sure. this podcast, which is... What is your most memorable experience in the ocean? My most memorable experience in the ocean is the first time I ever took my dad fishing. And I don't mean the first time my dad took me fishing. Uh, my, grandpa my grandfather on my mom's side was an avid fisherman, but my dad just never was really into it. And I got the opportunity during my master's work uh, on sandbar shark feeding ecology in South Carolina uh, to bring guests and I got to bring my dad and for years and years he's been very supportive of this career choice of mine but I think he always thought I would grow out of it and go to business school or law school or something and he got to come out on the shark boat with me in South Carolina and uh, I was not bitten by a shark but we did have to cut the trip uh, short and rush to the to get emergency medical care because I got a giant shark fishing hook clean through my hand oh uh, and the, and this is apparently, these are the, the 16 knot circle hooks for those of you uh, listeners who are, are fishers or scientists. This is a big honking hook. Uh, this is not the little tiny hooks that you use for freshwater fishing. And I am now um, in a NOAA, a U.S. government National Marine Fishery Service safety training video because they are not aware of anyone else ever getting one of these hooks pulled through their hand ever. Uh, so I, the first time I ever took my dad fishing, it did end in tears, but uh, it was a, a, he did get to see some sharks beforehand and has since come out with me when I have uh, been less cocky and had less uh, emergency medical incidents. So that's, that's good. <laughs> okay, great. Because that was going to be my follow-up question is, did your dad actually go back to fishing after that quite traumatic experience? He did, yeah. He did. That's good. That's good. How did you how did you end up with that hook in your hand? It's it's still a little unclear to me. It all happened very fast, but when you're when you're pulling a long line, which is a common commercial fishing gear and a modified one is used for shark research, uh -huh. uh, a very very this is a long stretch of, of rope with uh, lots of baited hooks coming off it, and the the most important rule is at no point do you let go of the line. Uh, that what you have to sort of do hand over hand because of the, of the hooks and just for a quarter of a second I let go of the line and just floop. Oh, oh. So don't <laughs> li listen to your safety training friends. Uh, don't get cocky. It doesn't matter how experienced you are. Most of my scientific colleagues who have been bitten by sharks mm. uh, are more senior and more experienced than they got cocky. 
They thought I've done this thousands of times without incident. This time I can be a little more lax. Nope. The first time you don't have to be terrified of sharks, but you should respect them. And uh, whenever you forget to, they'll remind you why you should. Mm, yeah, exactly. There's there's definitely two ends of the spectrum. I think there's there's people who are very new to things and maybe don't quite know what they're doing. And then there's also when you do, like you say, when you do get very experienced, you end up maybe being a bit lax with things sometimes, which is completely natural. But you know, always important. Safety first. Safety first, kids. <laughs> yes. Um, but yeah, that's that's definitely. Um, one of the most unusual, most memorable experiences we've had on the podcast, because usually people talk about these, um, you know, wonderful encounters. I saw a dolphin and it was magical. Yeah. Yeah. And you're like, no, I've had plenty of that too. Hook straight through my hand. (laughs) (laughs) A&E. But yeah, you mentioned there that uh, sharks have always been an obsession of yours. And that's something that you talk about in the book as well. You say studying sharks was a childhood dream. Um, But you also mentioned Mm -hmm. that you went through a shark phase and a dinosaur phase. And I just wondered how have sharks or why have sharks, you know, held that fascination for you through way through from childhood all the way through to adulthood? Yeah. Well, I feel like most kids go through a shark thing or a dinosaur thing or both at some point in their childhoods. And I went through both. I had hundreds and hundreds of uh, plastic model dinosaurs Uh, And I knew the scientific names of tons of dinosaurs and all that good stuff. Uh, But and I had I had this stuff through high school, but I also had had the shark obsession the same length of time. And it came down to what do I want my day to be like? Uh, What do I want to be working towards? And when you're a marine biologist, your day is spent on a beach or on a boat or things like that. And when you're a paleontologist, your day is spent in the deserts or the Badlands or the Badlands. And did I want my life to be spent understanding animals that are still alive to try and stop them from going extinct or try to understand what a world that's no longer here and won't be here again used to be like? And uh, this it was an it was hard for me to give up one something I had long been obsessed with. But in the end, it was an easy choice. Sharks need our help. Sharks need science. Um, and uh, my, I love my job as a marine mm-hmm. biologist. Mm-hmm. And, and I guess in a way, when you're studying sharks, you are still getting the best of both worlds as well, because they have been around. They've been for, around so long. Yeah. Yeah. Over 400 million years. And, and, and yeah, you're almost studying living fossils still. So, so definitely kind of retain the best of both worlds in a way. Um, and uh-huh. yeah, I, d- I definitely went through a dinosaur phase as well when I was younger and a shark phase, so I can completely sympathize with that. Um, And I mean, you were definitely driven, like, throughout your childhood, like, once you decided that sharks were what you wanted to study, that's really kind of what you went for. Um, And so can you explain to our listeners who are, you know, quite a few of our listeners are in that phase at the moment, they're trying to decide where they want to go or what they want to do. And can you explain to them what, some of the steps were that you took to get to shark science, to get to be a shark scientist? Certainly. Uh, So I I studied uh, biology with a concentration in marine science for my undergraduate degree. Uh, I did not study marine biology, though I did take some of my electives were marine classes. And this is something that I tell my students Um, at Arizona State and at Georgetown, that if you want to be a marine biologist, studying marine biology is not necessary and may even be an impediment, at least at the undergraduate level. You want to get as broad-based an education as possible before you get more specific in your graduate degree. 
Um, so I studied biology with a concentration in marine science I, at, at Duke University in North Carolina. And the reason why I chose Duke is other than its excellent reputation overall, is it had a marine lab in the Outer Banks where students could study abroad within the same state, but three hours away. Uh, and you took classes there and you could do hands-on research right in the ocean. And I studied stingray feeding behavior out there. And I later went back uh, for a summer session and really loved it. I also did a study abroad experience on the Great Barrier Reef at James Cook University, which was amazing. Uh, then after that, I went and got my master's in marine biology, so starting to get more and more specialized uh, at the College of Charleston in South Carolina. And then I studied sandbar shark feeding ecology that began my love of sandbar sharks, which my scientific colleagues tease me about. Follow hashtag best shark on Twitter and Instagram, and you'll see years of me. Hashtag best shark. Best shark, yeah. yes. <laughs> um, and you'll see years of me talking about how much I love these animals and years of my colleagues teasing me for choosing what they perceive as a boring species to be the best shark. So after I got my master's uh, in marine biology at the College of Charleston, I went on to the University of Miami, where I got my PhD in what's called interdisciplinary ecosystem science and policy. So moving into more what my area of expertise has since become. Uh, interdisciplinary, what that means is it's both natural science and social science. So if you look at the laws that are used to protect endangered species and ensure that fisheries are sustainable, those laws don't actually influence what the fish do. And they can't. We cannot pass a law as humans that tell fish to change where they go or what they do. We can only pass laws that affect how humans interact with the fish or the endangered species. And to do that, we need to understand more of the human side of the equation. So interdisciplinary is studying both the sharks and how humans interact with the sharks and what they know about sharks. Uh, so I did that during my PhD at the University of Miami. Throughout this time, I've been working with collaborators um, all over the world. And um, I now uh, am a, a faculty research associate at Arizona State University, where I study public perception of shark conservation issues. Um, and I'm on the board of directors of the American Elasmobranch Society, which is a professional society that focuses on the scientific study and management of sharks and rays. I also do a lot of public science engagement, uh, especially but not exclusively through social media. I am at Why Sharks Matter on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Uh, I actually, that is the title of my book, but I actually had the title of my book before I had my social media handles. I've been Why Sharks Matter on Twitter since 2009. Uh, and I've been working on the book since before then. Oh. So this is a this book is a a, a long uh, a long work in progress. Oh, I didn't know that. I thought it was the other way around. Oh wow! Um, and as well, like really great um, forward thinking on your part because everything's very uh, very streamlined. Mm. There has since been interestingly a book called Why Dinosaurs Matter that came out that I was not involved with. Uh, and I saw that and I was like, come on, this, in another universe, this is me. Yeah, in some parallel universe, uh, little David Schiffman sort of went off on his dinosaur tangent rather than the sharks one. <laughs> I love that idea. Um, yeah, maybe maybe you and the authors of Why Dinosaurs Matter should link up and do one big event together. That would be really cool. And then people can ask you all kinds of crazy questions. Oh, man. Eight-year-old me would love that idea. <laughs> same, absolute same. I mean, 30-year-old me would love that. So I am, I am there if that <laughs> happens. <laughs> I can't let you get away without talking about sandbar sharks, hashtag best shark. 
Um, Hashtag best yard. And you say you say your colleagues your your colleagues think that these are relatively boring sharks, but can you explain to our listeners why you think they are the best shark? Sure. Uh, so sandbar sharks. If you've ever been to a major public aquarium, you've probably seen one. Uh, they're very common in aquariums. And if you picture just a shark in your head, uh, if, and it's not a great white, and it's not a hammerhead or a tiger shark, uh, it probably looks an awful lot like a sandbar shark. They're sort of the base model, the classic model, a typical carcharinid shark. And they don't have to have uh, fancy uh, heads or crazy tails or crazy colors to be wildly successful in a huge variety of environments. Uh, they are found all over the world. Uh, they are. They were not the first shark I ever saw but because of my master's research working with them, they're the first shark I ever saw a lot of. And so they'll always have a special place in my heart for that. But they're also, for millions of children around the world, because they're in aquariums, they are the first shark that that kid will ever see. And we know that that can inspire a lifelong love of wanting to protect the ocean. So sandbar sharks serve really important roles as ambassador species. They're also one of the most studied sharks in the world even though they're not commonly thought of that way. And one reason for that is because they're found just about everywhere. And another reason for that is not far from where I live now in Washington, D.C., the Virginia Institute of Marine Science has the world's longest running coastal shark survey. And right where they're based at the mouth of the Chesapeake Bay is a huge sandbar shark nursery. So there are just tons and tons of research mm -hmm. projects over the last 50 years that have focused on sandbar sharks right near where I live now. Uh, they're also the subject of a really interesting model of conservation and management in the, off the east coast of the United States. They are a, what's called a species of concern. Uh, so they're not an endangered species, but we're monitoring the situation closely so they don't become an endangered species. And that means that fisheries are not able to catch them. But fish, fisheries catching sharks is a major way that governments collect the data needed to conserve and manage sharks. So this is kind of a catch-22. So we have this fascinating partnership between science, academia, uh, con the conservation world, and industry called the Sandbar Shark Research Fishery, Fishery. And it's now just called the Shark Research Fishery, but it was the Sandbar Shark Research Fishery. And this means that in exchange for letting scientists come on board with them and collect samples and data, some fishermen are allowed to catch sandbar sharks. Um, and this mm. leads to uh, collecting a ton of data. So they're not, they're, they're certainly a basic model shark. They're nothing fancy, they're nothing flashy, but they have played really, really important roles in our understanding of the ocean, uh, in advancing conservation and management for all sharks and as ambassador species. And also I love them because they were my master's study animal. You definitely have a, a special relationship with the species that you've studied because in a way you kind of struggled through your thesis together um, and you sort of feel like you're in it together <laughs> with them and um, what are some of the kind of things that we've learned from from sandbar sharks you know that we that have kind of like changed the way that we that we see sharks or you know that have informed what we know about other shark species are there any findings like that yeah, there's some really cool things that have, been, that have been found about sandbar sharks specifically that may happen with other sharks, but we don't know of it yet. And one of the one of the things is uh, off off the coast of Israel, there are sandbar sharks that hang out in the warm waters where the power plants release 
uh, their wastewater, which we, it, where I, where I am now visiting my parents in Florida, manatees are very famous for doing that as well as some kinds of sea turtles. But sharks have only been seen doing that one place in the world, and it's sandbar sharks uh, in, I can't remember if it's the Red Sea or the Mediterranean. Uh, there's also some, a couple of really cool papers that are in review right now that I can't talk about yet, Ugh. but really amazing stuff. And you're going to see them sometime in the next year. Uh, and it's just incredible abilities that sandbar sharks have uh, that are better than other sharks, which was surprising to the authors involved, which is not, if it was me, I would tell you about it, but I'm a peer reviewer of them, so I'm not allowed. That's okay. Uh, but some cool stuff happening with sandbar sharks. Oh, oh, I'm excited. And they, they're, they're just one of the best, they're one of the best studied populations of wild vertebrates anywhere in the world uh, because there's this every year, the VIMS shark survey has studied the same body of water and they see the animals grow up and they see them come back. Mm. Uh, Bimini's lemon sharks are a similar long-term study site of the same population of, of vertebrates, but it's much newer. Mm. Uh, so that doesn't go back as long. So it's a it's a really cool. Uh, they're a really great study animal, not for, for uh, not for nothing because very few people love them this way. Yeah. Oh, I you've made you've definitely convinced me to show some yes! sharks some love. One down. <laughs> Although I do work with Baskin sharks, so I do. I've, I've got. Oh, those are of, cool too. I've got a bit of a soft spot for it. Um, I, I mean, Baskin sharks are getting a little bit of love now, but. You know, previously they weren't the the most beloved shark. So, um, so yes, that's what this podcast is all about: is is celebrating the sort of lesser known sharks as well. So yeah, I wanted to ask you about sandbar sharks, and I'm so glad that I did because now I know more about them and I love them even more. Um, but moving on to your new book, Why Sharks Matter, insert the the sound of champagne popping here. I have to cheers you with my tea instead. Um, but tell us new book <laughs> there it is ah. um, but tell us a little bit about the book and what your motivations were to write it because as you said you've been working on it for a really long time so you know tell us a little bit about the sort of development of that book yeah so there are lots of shark books out there in fact it's a whole category on Amazon is shark books uh, and but there's none that are like this one. So I wrote the book that I wanted to exist at several points over the last decade when I was talking with members of the public and they said, I would like to learn more about this. Can you direct me to a resource that is accessible to me and not a graduate school science textbook or law school textbook level read? And there really wasn't anything. So Why Sharks Matter, a deep dive with the world's most misunderstood predators, is the first book ever geared at a general public level audience, it's not a textbook, it's popular science, that systematically and thoroughly reviews the evidence for why sharks are important and what bad things can happen when they're in trouble, how in trouble are they and how we know, and what scientists, environmentalists, and you, dear readers, can do about it. There's never been a book like this before in its scope or in its style. Um, and I hope that uh, I hope that people learn a lot while reading it. Yes, I'm sure they will. I've I mean, I've had the absolute pleasure of getting to read it and it is super accessible. Um, you know, it's like you say, it's the first book that I've read about sharks that you don't have to, you know, have had some sort of degree or scientific background in to read and understand all the information. It's very easily digestible. Um, and, but also for people listening who, you know, are 
interested in the you know the scientific stuff there's plenty of that in it as well and there's also some really funny anecdotes from from your experiences in the field as well um such as one one of them that springs to mind is a shark vomiting uh, vomiting on your research colleague and I had no idea I know this sounds really silly because you know I do have a degree in zoology but I just never thought of sharks as an animal that could vomit <laughs> yeah, I, ha I hadn't really thought of it either until it happened right next to me. Uh, yeah, this was Dr. Austin Gallagher. Uh, we were we were studying tiger sharks, and we had one brought up on the boat, and Austin was sort of in front of it, holding holding the head still um, and working the working the hook, and it just uh, was it just neck to neck to knees coated him in just nasty tiger shark gut innards. And first of all, it was the worst thing I've ever smelled in my life. Uh, and I'm sure he had to burn those clothes and probably showered for two days after. But uh, he looked down at himself and noticed in the vomit some stomach contents and recognized what they were and recognized, I didn't know tiger sharks eat that. And he collected them and brought them back to the lab and analyzed it and got a short note publication out of it. And this was... Um, uh, what are called passerine birds, backyard birds, uh, not the species like the albatross that you think of as swimming over the ocean or flying over the ocean. And we were like, we were pretty far from shore. We couldn't see shore. So it was weird that there were passerine birds being eaten out there. Um, this has since been documented on a much larger scale um, in other places. And we think the answer is storms blow them out to sea. Uh, but yeah, Austin just got completely destroyed by tiger shark vomit. But had the presence of mind to not just freak out, first of all, that would have been bad because he was helping to secure the shark. Uh, but also to recognize in the disgusting stuff that's all over me that I'll never get the smell out, there's some interesting science. <laughs> that's, a very, um, that's a very scientist response is looking down at yourself covered in vomit and going, hmm, this is interesting. Um, this is the stuff that I can write a paper on. That's absolutely brilliant. Um but yeah, I, I mean, I mentioned science there, but the book itself is just such a lovely read. It's 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 so accessible. Thank you. Yeah, it's, it's congratulations. It's a really, really, really lovely piece of work. And I'm sure a lot of people are going to, you know, be helped to understand sharks um, a lot more from the book. Because, I mean, a lot of times we're talking in our own echo chamber, aren't we, really? Um, and we need to access people who maybe don't know about sharks or don't know how important sharks are or don't know how much is out there. One of the questions that we get asked a lot on the podcast or through Save Our Seas as well is, do sharks actually matter? So yes, we know they're all endangered. Um, yes, we know that they're under immense pressure from a number of different threats. But what actually happens if we lose them from the ecosystem? Um, and that's why I've called this episode, Do Sharks Matter? Um, not only because it matches your your social media handles and the title of your book. Um, so I, I, I wanted to get into that now and I kind of really want to break it down. So I guess the first thing to kind of talk, I guess the first thing to sort of talk about is when we're talking about the ecological significance um, or the role of something in the ecosystem and how important that is, what kind of things are we looking at when we're talking about that sort of thing? 
Yeah. So predators, and not all sharks are not all sharks are apex predators at the top of the food chain, but many are. Uh, but predators help keep the food chain in balance. And when we're talking about the ocean, this is a series of ecosystems and associated food chains that billions of humans depend on for food security and for jobs as well as for recreation. We very much want the oceans to be healthy. When they're not, it's extremely bad, not just for the environment, for, but for people's lives. And where I'm from in Western Pennsylvania, um, in the, the Midwestern United States, we used to have wolves. And a long time ago, we killed all the wolves because who wants wolves in your backyard? Wolves are scary. And then the deer population grew out of control. And the deer are now malnourished, so there's not enough food for them in the forest because there's too many of them. So they come out of the forest and they cause millions and millions of dollars of property damage. Uh, they, if, if a car hits a deer, that car is destroyed and the people inside are hurt. They destroy fences, they destroy gardens. And many of them are sick and they spread things like Lyme disease to humans when that would probably not be the case, at least as much, if there was an appropriate population of deer uh, that stayed where it was supposed to stay. So the same type of thing, this, that's called predation release. Uh, that's when you lose a predator, their prey population explodes. Uh, you've heard of survival of the fittest. Predators are a big reason why the not fit don't survive. And where if lots of people hunt deer, but that does not serve the same ecological role as predators. For one thing, predators go for the sick, the weak, the dying, uh, whereas hunters go for the biggest and strongest that leave the most pro the most impressive trophy. Uh, so it's very different ecological roles. So the same type of thing with predation release can happen in the ocean. When you lose predators, their prey populations go out of control, and this can this can lead to a ecosystem-wide ripple effects that are called trophic cascades. Uh, one of the things, trophic cascades are really, really bad and really unpredictable. The classic example of them is uh, otters, sea otters. You know, they adorably sit on their back and crush prey with rocks. Um, the, one of the things they eat is sea urchins and sea urchins eat kelp. Kelp forests are these really, really, really important ecosystems. And what happens is if you lose sea otters, the, the sea urchin population grow out of control and they eat all the kelp and that important habitat that was so vital for everything else is gone. And even though the otters don't directly interact with kelp, losing otters destroys the whole kelp forest. So that's the sort of unpredictable, unpredictable ripple effect that can happen from, from losing predators. You don't want that to happen in the ocean. Uh, there's also something called fear ecology. Uh, the premise of this is uh, prey animals will not go to a particular area if they know or believe there's a shark there, uh, even if there's a rich foraging ground there for them because it's just too risky. They'd rather have a less good foraging area or less good habitat with less of a risk to them. And if you've ever taken the long way around to get back to your car rather than cut through a dark alley at night, it's the same premise. You spent more energy doing that, but by reducing the potential physical risk to yourself. And these effects are much less well studied, but they are potentially very, very strong. And we don't know what will happen when we lose uh, the fear ecology effects. There's something called fear release, which is a relatively newer term similar to predation release. But again, it can be very, very bad. When, you t when you're talking about destabilizing ecosystems and ripple effects through entire food webs, it is very unlikely to be good. Uh, it's difficult to predict. It's difficult to even guess, 
but it's very unlikely to be good for anyone or anything. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's kind of like everything is almost like a finely oiled machine, like an ecosystem. Yes. And if one of the cogs isn't working or one of the, the components is taken out of that, the whole thing sort of breaks down or doesn't work as well or it doesn't work as it originally should. And that's kind of what we mean when we talk about like ecosystem function and the different roles each animal plays and 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 sharks can sometimes be or most often sharks are a really really integral part of that machine yes um uh, even even when they're not so we talked about you know great white sharks like apex predators that's what we talk about all the time is those animals at the top of the food chain but there are also sharks who aren't at the top of the food chain that have a really core ecological function um, so I just want to go back to predation release. Mm-hmm. Um, are there any examples of this, you know, with sharks in the wild? Yeah, there's a the really well publicized one, which was actually predation release leading, leading to a trophic cascade has been pretty thoroughly debunked, uh, which is a shame because it was a great example. So I discussed the example as well as what's wrong with it in the book. Uh, but I basically every environmental nonprofit used this example for five or 10 years. And now we're learning that it's perhaps not uh, as clearly stated as, as we believed. Uh, but that was with large sharks off the, co- the east coast of the United States, uh, their populations declining, leading to cow nose rays, a mid-level predator, exploding in population. And then the cow nose rays eating all the scallops and collapsing a, a major food resource and fishery off the United States. But it turns out that the sharks uh, don't, didn't decline as much as, they, as that paper thought. Cow nose rays have not increased in population and cow nose rays don't eat scallops that much. But other than that, it's a great example. Um, <laughs> but there, there uh, is one example in the Pacific Ocean where there's something called a pelagic stingray, which you think of a stingray and you think of, a, you think of something that lives on the sand or under the sand. And pelagic stingrays look an awful lot like that, but they live in the open ocean. And pelagic stingrays seem to have greatly increased their population as a result of large sharks in the open ocean Pacific declining. And what is that going to do to the rest of the ecosystem? We have no idea, but it can't be good. The ecosystem was in balance mm-hmm. when there were a certain number of, ca- of pelagic stingrays, and now there's a lot more of them. So what is that going to do? I have no idea, and neither does anyone else, but it can't be good. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that cow nose ray, ray one, I was actually taught that in a, either first or second year of marine biology and it was only when I read your book that I was like oh <laughs> that actually doesn't stand up anymore it's, it's really famous as an example yeah it is yeah it is um and then another example that our listeners might have heard of is uh reef species um or reef species of shark can you talk a little bit about that yeah there are some examples uh, that are hypothesized or modeled or or uh, possibly uh explained on coral reefs the one that I think probably holds the most water, uh, and every one of these papers, I discuss sort of ongoing debates about this issue and throughout the book. Uh, I try to present, there are, those of you who follow me on social media know that I have capital O opinions about a lot of this stuff, but I try throughout the book to fairly present both sides of these discussions, as well as making sure you know where I stand on it. Uh, but the, the example that I think probably has the most going for it is, um, Loss of sharks leading to more mid-level fish predators like large snappers or groupers. Um, And having more snappers or groupers, they eat parrotfish. And parrotfish 
help keep algae from growing, overgrowing on coral reefs and killing the coral. So the loss of sharks can contribute to threats facing coral reefs. That's not the only threat facing coral reefs. Climate change is, of course, a big one, as well as stony coral disease and things like that. Uh, grouper eat things other than parrotfish. Humans are also killing all the grouper and also killing all the parrotfish. But I think there's probably something to that example, even though it is at present, I would call it being discussed, but not proven. Uh, but there's a bunch of other examples of we think this might be happening and they always lead to someone saying, yeah, it's probably not that, you know, what's called a rebuttal uh, in the scientific literature. Yeah, rebuttals are sort of like um, scientists kind of argue in, in papers, really. Um, so you'll have one person who will release a paper saying one thing and then another scientist will submit a rebuttal, which is like um, uh, kind of like the, the counter argument, but it's the slowest argument that could ever occur because if you imagine a paper takes about a year <laughs> it takes years yeah <laughs> yeah yeah this is why i love social media and also sometimes why i hate social media uh, is because those discussions can happen in real time uh, rather than you taking six months to write your argument and then the other people taking six months to respond to it like i can just tweet at them and say hey what do you think about this and everyone sees mm -hmm. to go back to the sort of uh, do sharks matter question one term that's thrown around a lot is keystone species. Yes. Um, and I wondered if we could spend a little bit of time talking about what a keystone species is and, you know, if there are any examples of that in, in the shark world. Sure. So a keystone, a keystone in general is if you picture a, an old classic Roman arch, the keystone is the top middle without which the rest of the arch falls. Uh, it sort of holds everything in place. A keystone species is a species that has a disproportionate impact on its environment relative to how many of them there are. Uh, that if you, you know, if you lose kelp, uh, kelp in a kelp forest, you would expect that to have a big impact. The kelp, for, the kelp forest is everywhere. It, in terms of biomass, it's the biggest thing there. You would expect losing that to have an impact. But losing it, there might be a little fish in there that plays a really, really, really important ecological role, even though you don't think of them in that way. And if you lose them, it can have a massive impact, even though there aren't that many of them. So the classic example of this uh, is the Northwestern United States, the Rocky Intertidal Pools. Uh, and there was this diverse ecosystem on the Rocky coastline with lots of marine invertebrates. And there was also this predator uh, called Pisaster, which is a sea star, a starfish, and it ate everything. Uh, they it, it targeted all these species equally. And an, a, a brilliant ecologist named Robert Payne uh, wondered what would happen if we got rid of the Pisaster sea stars. Wouldn't it be great for everything? Their predator is gone. And it turns out, no, it's not great for everything because without Pisaster eating some of them, one of those many species of marine invertebrates on the rocks grows out of control and takes over everything. So if you have a much more biodiverse ecosystem when you have a predator going through eating everything than when you remove that predator. Is this happening with sharks? Uh, probably somewhere, but it is. It, this is another thing where we're pretty sure it's happening but have not found hard evidence yet. The uh, keystone-ness is actually an ecological metric. Uh, my editor went back and forth with me on the book of this. Uh, my editor was just an absolute blast to work with. But she said, this cannot possibly be a real word. This is the dumbest word I've ever heard, keystone-ness. <laughs> uh, but it is, it is a word. It's a mathematically measurable thing. And the one time we have measured keystone-ness in sharks, they had very, very low keystone-ness. 
that does not mean that they can't anywhere. But the, the, the general reason why this stuff is so complicated is because the ocean food webs are complicated. There are lots of things that serve as predators. There are lots of things that eat each other. Uh, so when you lose one of them, maybe that'll have ripple effects or maybe one of the other predators will step in. Uh, and you don't know, and we don't want to do an experiment on removing all the all the whales and all the snapper and see what happens. Uh, so it's re this stuff is really complicated and a lot of it is theoretical or modeling or trying to make sense of something after the fact. So do sharks matter? Absolutely, yes. Exactly how, uh, it depends. Uh, and what will happen if we lose this particular shark species is basically impossible to answer. But you want healthy shark populations off our coasts because they help make the, the marine and coastal food web healthy. And we want very much want these food webs to be healthy because they are vitally important for uh, food security, especially for many of the poorest people in the world, uh, as well as jobs. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. And sharks absolutely do matter. And we don't want to find out what happens when we lose them. We don't want that to be a case of, oh, well, we, we don't know exactly. So let's just see what happens. We do not want that to be a scenario at all, especially as well, because I think a lot of people think of sharks as predators that, you know, eat other animals and keep the ecosystem in check in that way. But, you know, there are sharks as well that are prey species for other animals as well, as we're seeing, you know, we see throughout the ocean ecosystem. Um, and, you know, there are even sharks, you mentioned this in the book as well. Um, is it bonnet heads that they found are also herbivores? Yeah. So this is a crazy thing. So we, we had said for forever, uh, we have um, all that all sharks are predators. And then there's always some, whenever I say that, there's always someone on social media who says to me like, well, what about whale sharks? They eat plankton. Plankton are animals, my friends. Eating tiny animals is still eating animals. Uh, but bonnet heads were found to have seagrass in their stomach when we did stomach content studies. And by we, I mean the scientific community, not me specifically. Uh, and the, the and I, everyone thought like, well, yeah, they're not eating it. They're eating crabs and they're accidentally getting some seagrass in their stomach. Uh, I, I know this feeling well. Sometimes I fail to pick all the lettuce off of my deli sandwich. That doesn't mean <laughs> I've become vegetarian. Uh, but it turns out that they can digest the seagrass and get some nutritional content out of it. And that was the, the structures, the digestive structures and biochemistry necessary to digest plant matter is very, very different from what's necessary to digest um, animal matter, uh, meat, fish, crabs. So it's weird that that's there. And so far that's only been found in bonnethead sharks, which are a small relative of the, the hammerheads, a small member of the hammerhead family. But it may be in other stuff too, because it's it's complicated to evolve something like that. And what are the odds it only evolved once uh, or only evolved recently in one species? I don't know. We've talked a lot about the sort of ecological role of sharks, but something that you mentioned, um, you know, earlier on in the podcast is that they've also got a very, very important role to humans, not only through how they keep the oceans healthy, but, you know, they're also a very important um, social and economic and, and, and cultural value as well. They have a very important value in those um, in those ways, too. And I wondered if we could uh, talk a little bit about that. Sure. 
so there are, sharks are also, uh, in addition to the economic importance of them keeping our valuable, the food webs that support valuable fisheries in check, uh, they also are support fisheries themselves. There are fisheries for sharks, uh, which are really, really important uh, for food security and livelihoods themselves. And a lot of folks on, a, a big reason for recent thrusts of my research is when I go to a scientific conference of shark experts, we talk a lot about shark fisheries and sustainable fisheries management. And when I talk on social media about this, everyone says, no, it's illegal to fish for sharks. No one fishes for sharks. No one eats sharks. Obviously, we should ban all fishing for sharks. And that's just profoundly wrong. Um, and it, trying to understand the causes and consequences of this large scale misunderstanding has been the focus of a lot of my research and a big chunks of the book for the last 10 years. And the short answer here is that if you don't know what you're talking about, it's okay to not speak. Uh, it is great that so many people want to, to help save sharks, but if you don't know what you're doing, guessing is not likely to help. There are ways that you can help by supporting people who know what they're talking about. Uh, but yeah, there are, there are sustainable shark fisheries. Uh, they provide meat as well as fins to the global marketplace. Uh, there are uh, scuba diving with sharks operations that are economically important. I discuss this idea in the book a lot of the, uh, there's this conservation claim that because of wildlife tourism of swimming with sharks, sharks are more valuable alive than dead. And therefore we should ban fishing and have everyone go scuba diving with sharks. There's a lot of issues with that claim, but it's certainly true in some places, in some cases. Uh, and I, I, I could rant about that specific claim for a whole podcast episode, so I'll, I'll cut myself <laughs> off there. But I talk about why the, it's more complicated than that a lot in the book. Yeah, yeah. And and I think it's quite important because I know that we get comments as well about shark fisheries and, you know, people saying that they should all be banned. But what we actually really need is sustainable management of these fisheries rather than them being yes. banned because they're so important for they're so important for people not only you know in developed countries but mainly in developing countries as well who rely on shark fisheries as a source of income um and also a a, a source of protein as well um in a in a time when we are facing world hunger as well so sharks are really really important in that respect as long as the fisheries are managed correctly. Yes, and they're often not. Uh, and that's absolutely a, a conservation crisis, but they can be. Uh, a thing that I tell people on social media all the time is that if you are just now hearing about the concept of sustainable fisheries for sharks for the first time, and you consider yourself someone who follows these issues closely and knows a lot about them, like you are not hearing from the right people uh, because this is not a novel concept. It's not a, it's, it's extremely widely held. Uh, my research has found that 90% of, of shark scientists support sustainable fisheries management for sharks and 78% of environmental nonprofit activists who work for sharks, work with sharks, support this. So this is not a small or minor or fringe issue. Um, and it, but something like 99% of the social media comments from people who are not experts are, obviously we need to ban all shark fishing. Obviously there's no such thing as sustainable fishing for sharks. Obviously if you're eating sharks, you're evil and or stupid. Uh, and it's not helpful and it's mm -hmm. not true. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I mean this, like like we said, we could we could have a whole podcast episode on this. And we have, <laughs> we have talked about this in previous podcast episodes. Yep. Um, but you know, it's a 
just as a kind of last last thing to say, this is a really, really complicated issue. It's not as black and white as complete blanket banning something or just allowing fisheries to run rampant through the seas. You know, it's it's a very complex thing that a lot of people are working on um, and yourself, yourself being one of them. We're talking a little bit about sort of like misconceptions about sharks and misunderstanding and also fear as well. A lot of, you know, public perception of sharks is quite negative. Um, and so we've established that sharks matter, but do people's fear and misconceptions of sharks matter? Yeah, uh, it, to, I would say to some extent, yes. Uh, I know there are some folks in the environmental community who are very, very frustrated that so many scientists focus all of their efforts on saying, actually, sharks are not a threat to you. Like lots of things are not a threat to me, but that doesn't mean that I love them and want to devote time and energy and resources and money to saving them. The goal should be sharks are not a threat to you and they're good and they're in trouble and they need your help and here's how you can help. So a lot of people that focus all of their outreach on, you think sharks are gonna eat your whole family, but really they don't do that very often. That is not helping as much as some people think it is. But misconceptions absolutely matter. If you don't know what's really going on, you are unlikely to help in a useful way. Uh, so misconceptions absolutely matter. Scientists are not the ones in charge of making the, the policy uh, and the regulations and the rules and the laws. We need public support and we need the public to know what's going on and we need the public to trust expert voices. And when we say we need you to help in this way, we need people to do that rather than having someone who's loud and make, can make flashy Instagram graphics uh, say ban all shark finning in Florida without knowing that we did 30 years ago. Yes, definitely. I think it's 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 really important to like educate yourself and make sure that your information is coming from a, a, a legit, legitimate source. Like it's, it's not just a Facebook post that you've read, but make sure that you check out the science behind it and, and, and make sure that it's scientifically accurate as well. Um, and I mean, the, the book that you've written will help a lot in the way of, uh, for, for people who maybe have misconceptions about sharks to, um, to, to better understand them as, as a group of animals and better understand the issues that are facing them as well, as well, your social media too, you do so many things on social media, you're so active, um, and we'll, we'll post links, uh, in the write up to this episode of all your social media handles. It is at why sharks matter um but yeah it'll all be yes on twitter facebook and instagram mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and the book as well as why sharks matter see super super easy all synergy i love the fact that you have a sort of i don't want to call it a brand but you sort of created a brand early on and stuck with it and now people associate why sharks matter with you um so yes please do go and follow david and listen to what he's saying. Um, and if you want as well, he has lots of scientific papers out there, one of which I want to talk to you about right now, which is one that came out this year, um, which was a big review of kind of research and policy related to sharks and what you think priorities are for the future. And I just wanted to it's a, it's a big paper and there's lots of stuff in it. But I just wondered if you could give, you know, a quick summary of what you think the sort of biggest priorities are as we as we move forwards? Sure. Uh, so the, the goal of this paper is that there are lots of scientists, especially graduate students and early career scientists, who, like me, want to use their science to help threaten species of sharks. But they don't know enough about 
policy and law and management to be able to do so usefully. Just because a species is endangered doesn't mean that any possible thing you discovered about that species is useful to their management. Uh, so we uh, published lists of research priorities can help with this. So you don't know if what you're doing is something that's actually gonna be useful for conservation and management, check an existing list of conservation research priorities. If it's on there, that's a good sign that you're working in the right direction. Uh, so there are lots of these, but this is the one we did as the first one for all threatened species of sharks, skates, rays, and chimeras in the United States. And how we did this is it wasn't just what I thought the, the priorities were going to be, is we, we reached out to everyone in the United States who is a scientist who works on threatened species or a fisheries manager at the state or federal level or an environmental nonprofit activist who works on these issues or a member of the fishing industry that serves as an advisor on fisheries management councils. And we asked them, what do you think we should work on? What do you think scientists should work on that they're not working on now or that they're not working on enough now? Some of the ones that have not shown up on previous versions of this exercise that I was excited about were concerns about all this offshore energy construction uh, that's such an important priority for uh, the environmental movement. What's that going to do to sharks? We largely haven't studied it yet. Uh, there were a lot of more concerns about climate change impact on sharks than have been found in past iterations of this exercise. There's a, a recognizing uh, or an increased recognition um, that recreational fishing for sharks can be a threat, uh, a conservation threat in some circumstances. There's a lot more social science type questions than have shown up in past versions of this exercise run by others. Uh, there's a lot of economics research and policy suggestions that uh, there's a lot of discussion about we're doing this well in this circumstance, we should do it in this circumstance too. Uh, why are we not studying these species when we're studying these very similar species in the same waters? So it was, it was a lot of fun working on this. And the other advantage of social science work like this is you can do it during a pandemic when you can't travel and get on your boat. Uh, this was all done uh, via, via SurveyMonkey, uh, or Qualtrics rather, uh, a, a company similar to SurveyMonkey. Um, and via email. It's a fantastic paper. There is so much information in there. And if there's any, you know, early career scientists listening to this that are maybe looking for some ideas, um, that's a really good place to start. Before you go, uh, tell us how we can get our hands on your book. Yeah. So it is, again, it's Why Sharks Matter, a deep dive with the world's most misunderstood predator. It is available as of May 24th from Johns Hopkins University Press. Uh, it is for sale at bookstores, at science museums, zoos, and aquaria around the United States and Canada and the United Kingdom. It is available from specialty bookstores all over the place. You can buy it direct from the publisher anywhere, and it is on Amazon. Woohoo! Amazing. Um, and... Our final question is one that it's probably my favorite question. It's one that we ask everyone to close the podcast. And it is, if you could be any species of shark or ray in the world, what would you be and why? Oh, got to go with the sandbar shark here because they're the hashtag best shark. <laughs> they are the hashtag best shark. Although, unfortunately, you'd probably be prodded a lot by some very inquisitive scientists as a sandbar shark. <laughs>
I would imagine. But yeah, you'd be you'd be a pioneering shark, pioneering, uh, leading the field of shark science. So very appropriate. Um, but David, thank you so much. It has been so, so wonderful to talk to you, to have you on the podcast and to learn all about your book and to answer the question, do sharks matter? I think we can safely say they absolutely do. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to chat with you. Glad you enjoyed the book. This podcast was brought to you by the Save Our Seas Foundation. It was hosted and edited by me, Isla Hodgson. Our beautiful artwork is by Nicola Poulos and the wonderful jingle you can hear right now is by David Knight. A huge thank you to Dr. David Schiffman for joining us and telling us just how much sharks matter. Please go and check out his new book, Why Sharks Matter. The link will be in the write-up of this episode. And you can also find him and chat to him by following at Why Sharks Matter on Twitter and Instagram. And a massive thank you to you at home for listening. As always, if you'd like a question answered on the podcast, want to suggest a topic, or just want to say hi, please feel free to get in touch by emailing isla at saverseas.com. And if you like this podcast, you can really help us out by leaving us a five-star review on your podcast apps. Alrighty, have a jawsome week and we'll see you next time.